MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances. Whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities, or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death, we all want to know, what happened next? To find out, listen to Womanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Donald Trump says, ultimately, Putin is going to take over all of Ukraine. Wow. We have a jam-packed show today. The Washington Post plumb line blogs, Greg Sargent, will talk to us about why repealing Michigan's right-to-work law was a huge deal. Then Vice's Cameron Joseph talks to us about the Claremont Institute's snuggling up to Ron DeSantis after being Trump's brain for many years. But first, we have former congressman and current best friend of mine, Mondaire Jones. Welcome back to Fast Politics fan favorite, Mondaire Jones. Ooh, fan favorite. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I've been been promoted. (laughs) I apologize, but it's true. Trump was indicted yesterday or incited depending on your autocorrect. Or indicated, I think, according to what he truths on Truth Social. Yes. And by the way, I went to a dinner last night with a bunch of political writery people, and they were like, one of them was like, now every indictment is going to come down. I was like, really? No, I don't think that's how it works. I have great faith in the <laughs> prosecutor down in Fulton County, Georgia, and I've got more faith in the special prosecutor at, at Maine Justice, and I do Merrick Garland. And so I think they'll indict when they're good and ready. Yeah. I do think that those indictments are imminent based on the public reporting. Here these Republicans are, right? There was so many machinations about this, right? You had Lindsey Graham weeping 
on television, like a televangelist begging people to send donations to Donald Trump, right? Begging people. What are they thinking? I don't know. I, I, I mean, Lindsay, I suppose, wants additional terms in the Senate. I don't know why he needed to cry when he did that. I mean, I think he can just kind of toe the party line as damaging as that is to our democracy with, without the, you know, the, the waterworks. And it's just really sad how far he has fallen from the standpoint of, of integrity. I think John McCain is, is rolling in his grave because of what his, his dear friend has been doing these past several years. But I will just say, I think all of these people are very happy that Trump is finally getting indicted for things. Right. They do not want him to be the nominee, even though he is even more likely it would appear to become the nominee after having been indicted by several different prosecuting authorities. They don't want to piss off the base. And unfortunately, the base is not persuaded by efforts to hold Trump accountable for whether it is inciting violence at the Capitol on January 6th or trying to overturn the election results in Georgia or holding on right, to classified base. documents when he's been told he has to return them. Right. <laughs> and lying about what classified documents you have. That's what I'm sort of struck by is like there were some Republicans, I mean, some thought leaders in the Republican Party like Cat Turd and also Eric Erickson, who both said, I put them basically on the same level, who said like, you have now made Trump president again. And I actually don't think that's true. I think that what they were responding to is they now know Trump will win the nomination. I think that's right, that he's more likely today to win the nomination than he was before news of the indictment came down. But I'm also not 100% convinced of that theory, because as we get closer to the primaries on the Republican side, which will take place next year, I'd like to imagine that Republican voters, as disappointing as they may be on a certain level, are concerned <laughs> with electability. And by then, I expect that Trump will have been indicted by the Department of Justice at the federal level, by the DA in Fulton County. And of course, he's been indicted by the Manhattan District Attorney. That's not something that is exciting for a for the average general election voter. I mean, if you're an if you're an independent, you know, you're, you're, you're concerned about that and you're more likely to vote for Joe Biden than you would be in the absence of those indictments. And I, and I think that there are still some Republicans who are concerned about whether their nominee can win in the general election. That's the theory, right? That's the theory is that you are nominating someone because they can win in a general election and not because you, you know, you're trusting a weird QAnon plan that doesn't really exist. Yes, I'd like to believe that. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. You know, the thing that's so I want to say interesting, but it's really kind of what if there's a sort of negative word for interesting. The thing that's so worrying about where we are right now is that there is a sense in which this Republican Party is controlled by its base and its base is not living on Earth One. That's right. There is, in fact, an effort to completely delude the base Republican voter into thinking that facts are not reality. I mean, that takes the form of Tucker Carlson's show and primetime and pretty much every show at Fox News with maybe one or two <laughs> exceptions, according to the right. discovery that we now have in the Dominion voting case which is an extraordinary lawsuit that I think will end favorably for Dominion and hopefully 
be a boon to those of us who want to see truth prevail and democracy remain. Democracy continue. <laughs> yes. I want to ask you about that. So, you know, we are in the run up to this Dominion case. If I were Rupert Murdoch, which I am very much not, thank God, I would want to settle this case. If I'm your attorney and you're Rupert Murdoch, I'm urging you to settle this thing as soon as possible. In fact, I would have urged you to settle it a long time ago. <laughs> now, oftentimes, and I know this from from having practice law for uh, several years, clients don't do what you advised to do. <laughs> right. uh, and I think there's actually been some reporting to this effect. But my God, this is really embarrassing. I mean, Tucker Carlson is now admitting to a conversation he had with Donald Trump in which he apologized for the text messages that he sent to Powell, <laughs> which is about his public admission that we're going to get, I think. And of course, he only went on far right media to describe that conversation. But if you continue to read the Wall Street Journal, you're not going to hear anything about the Dominion case. Right. I also feel like Dominion really has a kind of Thelma and Louise like drive off the cliff mentality with this case. So I'm kind of young. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're a little. Thank you very much. A little younger than Jesse and I. Thank you. What is someone is bragging about being in their 30s here? So the whole Thelma and Louise thing is 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 something I'm. St- oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> no longer fan favorite. <laughs> fan unfavorite, Mondaire Jones. My apologies. God damn it. But yes, Thelma and Louise. It's a story of two actresses, middle aged actresses. I guess they were young then, but anyway, they drove off a cliff. They they were willing to take themselves down. That's horrible. <laughs> Good. I'm glad I could give you this insight into popular culture. I'm delighted. It's very, there's a lot of bragging about how young he is here. But anyway, we'll allow it. No, I look, I mean, I just, if I go to Florida, I'll never hear about it because I'm sure this stuff has been banned already <laughs> by Ron DeSantis. Right, exactly. Banned by Ron DeSantis. We had on this podcast uh, in the last episode, we had um, Jen Psaki and she was talking about this idea that this White House really can kind of sit back and let the Republicans destroy themselves and each other. Do you think that's a wise move for Democrats? To an extent. She's she's certainly right that the contrast is not one that's difficult for Democrats to draw. Right. But I do think at the same time, and, and I don't think she would disagree, that Democrats need to be making the affirmative case. Right? We need to continue to remind people about the crisis of abortion care in this country, which only grows worse by the day. Uh, we need to continue to remind people of the implications for uh, our democracy, of, of having these people uh, continue to not certify elections and to otherwise subvert elections and, and suppress the right to vote. More than anything, we need to talk about how they are trying to repeal provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act, for example, right. which would actually reduce our deficit and allow us to actually tax very wealthy people in this country so that we can continue to provide necessary government programs to people in need. And yes, to lower prices, such as the price of prescription drugs, all of these things are economic initiatives that Democrats are in favor of and that Republicans have been in active opposition to. This is like the most Republican thing I've ever heard. I can't remember who it was, but one of these horrible Republican congressmen was like, we should take the money in the Inflation Reduction Act that's for solar panels 
and use it to arm teachers. That's absurd. And I was like, but this is like the perfect Republican thing. And and I would like to talk to you for a minute about the Thomas Massey conversation. Jamal Bowman. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, that's that's that, that's actually what came to mind when you just said that. And then, of course, there's there's Tim Burchett out of Tennessee, who literally said to a reporter, we're not going to fix it. Right. After he was asked about the mass shooting in his home state, in his home state of, t- of Tennessee. So these are not serious people. When he said, we're not going to fix it, put that on a T-shirt and right. talk about it. Now, that's something you want to make the affirmative case. You want to remind people of what this guy said, because it was the most honest thing that we have heard from Republicans in Congress, I would submit in many years, we're not going to fix it. So these are not people who go to Congress and who enter public life because they want to solve problems. These are people who at most want to maintain the status quo, if not actively make things worse. For example, by arming the same teachers who they don't trust to select books for their children. I know. (laughs) This is an amazing bit of sorcery. They don't trust teachers to pick books, but they do trust teachers to carry guns. I want to ask you about that a screaming match, though, because <laughs> uh, what was interesting to me was people got really mad at Jamal. The people on the right got really mad at him. And they were like, this is not the way you conduct yourself. Okay, sure. We're in Trump world. But the thing is, what struck me was... Here is Thomas Massey, who basically wants to make the government as small as possible and drown it in a bathtub, saying that the answer is arming teachers because they know that's the that's sort of their favorite response, because they know that nobody wants that. Teachers don't want it. Democrats don't want it. Republicans probably don't even really want it. They just know that it's like a great throwaway line. That's right. And, you know, what's remarkable about that exchange between Representative Jamal Bowman and Representative Massey is that Massey didn't just walk out of the Capitol building as he saw and heard (laughs) Representative Bowman (laughs) yell about what had happened in Tennessee and the cowardice of Republicans. He stopped him and he engaged him in a conversation. And I think that's because he was triggered by the righteousness, the moral clarity of the things that Jamal Bowman was saying in that moment, which is that it was cowardice. It is cowardice for Republicans in Congress not to try to fix it, (laughs) not to support an assault weapons ban. I should laugh because we have children being murdered in school on a regular basis and Republicans are like, meh. I mean, so there's nothing funny about it. It's horrendous, but it's so horrible that it's like almost in some way comedic. They equate banning assault weapons like AR-15s, these weapons of war, with taking away all firearms that exist in American society. It is so intellectually dishonest. We used to have an assault weapons ban. It was wildly effective from 1994 to 2004 when it expired. And it's something that is the minimum, I think, that Congress yeah. can and should do, you know, along with universal background checks. But it's just pathetic. You know, Byron Donalds out of Florida saying that people are responding emotionally to this. Well, yeah, we should all be so outraged. <laughs> Byron Donalds is a new Trumpy congressperson who actually comes from, doesn't he come from 
the weapons industrial complex? Well, I, <laughs> I so so Byron was uh, I think in in the financial services industry as he oh, okay. as he often brags about before he was elected to Congress and uh, is you know really positioning himself as the one of the heir apparent heirs apparent to to Donald Trump. I just think when people say things like this, we ought to believe them, right? I mean, so what he is saying is that he thinks a conversation about common sense reforms to end gun violence in this country and to stop the uniquely American problem of gun violence is is a mere emotional response, right? When when Tim right. Burchett says we're not gonna fix it, like we we have to take what they're saying in these moments of honesty very seriously and vote these guys out of power. And not <laughs> And that's where I think it's not enough for us to just sit back. Um, I think we have to be talking about this on the stump. And we certainly have to talk about Medicare and Social Security, because I think more than any policy issue, that is going to make a difference at the polls in November of 2024. And you see it in the visceral reaction that Republicans have to the legitimate charge that they do want to cut Social Security and Medicare being made by Democrats. Right, which they do. The thing I really want to ask you about is George Soros. George Soros, one of the sort of most, uh, I think, demented talking points, but really is so popular with this group on the right, is that this idea that somehow George Soros has caused these indictments to come down on Trump. I am without words. This is really sinister stuff because it is steeped in anti-Semitism, which is at this point pervasive within the Republican Party, certainly among the leadership. I mean, they they use words like globalist and they they cite to George Soros in particular as really the guy who spawns all of the the liberal trouble (laughs) that from their perspective is, is being caused in this country. And here was George Soros in a interview with Semaphore saying, actually, I didn't donate to Alvin Bragg. So, you know, know, we know what this is about. And, you know, it's it's the the loudest people are, of course, the same folks who are out here saying that they're Jewish space ladies, right? And it's this is Marjorie Taylor Greene and her ilk, even as they try to accuse some members of the Democratic Party of of, of anti-Semitism. As a Jew, it's always been incredible to me that they believe Ilhan Omar is an anti-Semite. They can't tell you why. They just know. Right. Like my favorite thing to ask people, you know, I I have a lot of fancy friends who hate Ilhan. And I'll say, well, why do you hate her? Oh, because she's an anti-Semite. Well, what's anti-Semitic about her? Well, you know, and they can never. Right. They can't ever follow through on that because why would they? But then you have actual anti-Semitism, like real anti anti-Semitism, like George Soros is running the American justice system and they're completely silent. If anything, they're shopping the idea. Donald Trump literally announced his campaign by dining with Nick Fuentes and Kanye West, who I guess recently (laughs) has said that Jonah Hill has helped him change his perspective. But like, seriously, how can you support someone like that while claiming that you care about combating anti-Semitism. It is just completely incredible stuff and quite worrying. What do you think comes next here? I mean, we're definitely going to see a lot of Republicans uh, debase themselves for Trump, right? I mean, what do you think? To the extent that Donald Trump is even more likely 
to win the Republican nomination as a result of these indictments, which will continue to pile up. I think these swing district Republicans are in a lot of trouble because it is going to be exceedingly difficult to disassociate from that guy at the top of the ticket. And he is even more toxic and will be even more toxic in 2024 than he was in 2020. And now they're already competing against the headwinds that the decision to strike down Roe v. Wade by the far right supermajority in the Supreme Court has wrought as well as the, the salience now of their longtime project of cutting Social Security and Medicare at a time when uh, seniors need those programs more than ever because of inflation and everything else going on in our economy. Mondaire Jones, I hope you'll come back even though you are incredibly young. (laughs) I'm actually not so young. (laughs) I'm I'm just... (laughs) Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. (sighs) Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe... Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., 
We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Greg Sargent writes the Plum Line blog for The Washington Post. Welcome to Fast Politics, Greg Sargent. Thanks for having me on. Another day, another weaponization committee. Explain to me what you were saying before we started recording. Once again, Jim Jordan floated the lie that will just not die, right? Which is that Democrats denied Republicans the chance to cross-examine witnesses on the January 6th committee. They tell this lie constantly, right? But what actually happened is the following. Nancy Pelosi did nix two out of Kevin McCarthy's five choices, one of which was Jim Jordan. But the reason she did that was because everybody knew that Jim Jordan, and I believe it was Jim Banks, had been chosen expressly for the purpose of sabotaging the very possibility of having any kind of real January 6th accounting. A three-year-old could see that that was what was going on. So it was after that that Kevin McCarthy pulled his other three choices. And he did this in a calculation which went something like this. Well, okay, if, if there are no Republicans on the committee, and again, Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney are Republicans, but not in Republican land, right? But if there are no Republicans on the committee who are actual Republicans, then we'll be able to cast the entire affair as, as a partisan witch hunt against President Trump. They always call him President Trump, right? Right, right, right. Because in their minds, he will always be president. He will always be president. He will always be President Trump. That was a disastrous miscalculation on McCarthy's part. For one thing, it allowed Democrats to tell the actual story of what happened on January 6th without any saboteurs. And then it also didn't work. It didn't taint the investigation in the eyes of the American public, in the eyes of the middle of the country. Polls showed that people saw the, the, the charges as extremely serious. And and so it was just a disaster, and they just keep lying about it to this day, and it's just it's just a joke. First, let's talk about what's happening in Michigan, where they've sort of countered an anti-woke GOP frenzy. Michigan's such an interesting state because it was very good, very popular female governor. You have a female secretary of state, female AG. They were all Democrats, and they're really working now on the state legislature. Yeah, I mean, the, the big context here is that Michigan, of course, was one of the three blue wall states that Trump cracked in 2016 in the heart of the Midwest, right in the center of the Democratic base and in the center of, of the birthplace of, of labor. Michigan is, is often thought of as that. And that was a huge shock to Democrats, right? Legitimately so. What Trump accomplished was pretty amazing. But in 2020, Biden was able to win Michigan. And then in 2022, Democrats took control of the state legislature and the governorship. So that was a real routing of Republicans on, by Democrats. And so they're using this power now to try and do two things, right? One is to restore a semblance of sanity on, on, the, on the culture war front, 
by passing protections against discrimination for LGBTQ and rescinding an old abortion ban. But at the, at the same time, they're also uh, taking steps to strengthen labor in the state, which, as you guys all know, has been in serious decline for a long time. So they're, they're in the process of repealing right to work, which is a tremendous uh, thing for both labor and Democrats. Can you explain what right to work is for for the few people who are not completely read in on this? This is a vast oversimplification, but the gist is it allows workers to free ride on the benefits of negotiated union contracts without paying any dues. And it's been catastrophic for organized labor, not not just it, but it and other factors have been catastrophic for organized labor. And so when Republicans took control of a bunch of state legislatures in, in 2010, which, which, as you know, was a huge routing for the Democrats. One of the big things they did was do these quote-unquote right-to-work laws in places like Michigan and Wisconsin, which are really in the heart of the Democratic-slash-labor stronghold, or, or were in the heart of that. And so that was a tremendous blow. And so to undo that is a pretty major victory and, and a very significant event for Democrats on labor. You feel like Michigan is kind of a template. I'm hoping that it is, right? What we're seeing here is that Democrats are using their power fairly aggressively to fortify both labor and LGBTQ slash abortion rights at the same time. What I'm kind of hoping is that that can be a template for crafting a kind of pro, what you might call a pro-worker social liberalism that can really counter the the claim of Republicans in red states that their their reactionary agenda is somehow more in sync with working class values than social liberalism is. If Democrats can deliver for working people economically while also defending their social values fairly aggressively and succeed and make a lot of working people feel represented, then that could be, you know, something of a paradigm shift or at least the beginnings of one. Yeah, I mean, that seems like a really important data point, if that makes sense. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think there's a long way to go before this kind of thing can really be shown to work, but it would certainly be a bit of a game changer if it did. So the opposite of what's happening in Michigan, I think, is what's happening in Florida. Right. I mean, so we often are told to look at the contrast between Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, and Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, right? And Newsom, for his own purposes, is very eager to play up that contrast. But as you just pointed out at the beginning of, the, of, this, of this discussion, Gretchen Whitmer is a very popular female governor right in the industrial heartland. She presided over a real turnaround of the Democratic Party's fortunes in a swingy state, do we think it's mm -hmm. a swing state? I think. I think it's a swingy state for sure. It's swingy, right? Like, you know, it's not, yeah. I think people have said this before, but it's not a swing state until it is a swing state. Exactly. And so, you know, I think in 2024, it could be swingy again. The better comparison, I think, or the more interesting one is the DeSantis versus Whitmer comparison. Each one of them has a fair amount of control and each one is implementing their agenda pretty aggressively and using their power pretty aggressively. I think maybe in a way DeSantis is more aggressive on the culture war, quote unquote, culture war front than Whitmer is. Whitmer in fairness is not, she doesn't usually talk about it in the terms that we're talking about, right? I mean, DeSantis is running for president, right? I mean, that's what's happening there. This is not like Whitmer is just trying to govern a state. 
Right. I think that's true. And as a result, DeSantis is trying to play to a national ideologically charged audience in a bit of a different way. Right. Because the, there's no world in which DeSantis is, I mean, everything he's doing is all about getting in front of Trump's people. Right. And also showing, I think, GOP elites, as I wrote in this piece, I think one of the things that's going on here with the anti-woke stuff is he's trying to signal to GOP elites that he can actually capture the MAGA energy, but in a way yeah. that'll be less destructive and less self-destructive and, and, and counterproductive politically for the Republican Park. So a lot of these displays, right? So I think when he goes over to Texas and scoops up a bunch of migrants and flies them to Florida, then flies them to Martha's Vineyard, it's kind of a wink, wink at the at the GOP elite donor class as well, right? Yeah, for sure. He's basically saying, "Look, guys, the the base has kind of really lost its mind in the Trump era, and somebody's got to be able to say to them, we're delivering on your preoccupations.' Well, look, I can do it. I can fly migrants all over the place, you know. And and so, but don't worry, the bottom line will be fine. Right. Exactly. Just explain a little bit about this book banning bill. I mean, the thing with all these Republican bills is they're very sloppy. So, you know, like with the abortion bans, you know, they're not clear. So the doctors don't know who can get treatment and who can't. Right. I think that the vagueness is a very is a real feature of a lot of these quote unquote anti-woke bills. Right. One of the things that we keep seeing over and over is that the bills are drafted in such a way that it's really hard for teachers and educators and school officials to figure out exactly what's allowed and what isn't. And the result is that rather than risk running afoul of, of the law, they actually kind of self-censor. And some of the savvier observers of this stuff, and I agree with them on this, think that that's really a, a, a feature of these laws, that they're deliberately designed this way in order to create kind of a an atmosphere of fear and self-censor. So you mentioned that the, the the Florida book ban stuff. Well, you know, there's a there's a there's a bill that's going through the state legislature in Florida right now that's getting attention because it would expand, quote unquote, "Don't say gay," which is the limits on classroom discussion of uh, sex and gender identity, right? But also in that bill is a thing that clarifies the way the book bans are enforced in the following way. What it actually does is it makes it possible for single parents to not just object to a book, but also once a book or classroom instruction material is objected to, it has to be removed promptly, right? Before any kind of oversight or evaluative process unfolds to vet the objections. So if that passes, right, what that's going to do is it's going to make it even more inviting for your kind of local Moms for Liberty parent who's sniffing out books to ban everywhere she can to just say, here, ban this one, ban that one. I object to this one. I object to that one. And they'll be pulled without any kind of oversight process determining whether the objections are legitimate. It's interesting because it's like you have these Republicans who are so they're so mad at teachers, right? They feel the teachers who teach too much stuff about gay rights, that these teachers are grooming their kids, right? But then yeah. when you have someone like Thomas Massey screaming <laughs> at, I'm sure you saw that incredible screaming match. I did was being yelled at by Thomas Massey. And 
you did absolutely think to yourself, or at least I did, I thought to myself, like, this is, you know, Massey was screaming, if you want to keep these children safe, you should arm the teachers, which is like one of Republicans' favorite talking points, because they know that Democrats will absolutely never arm teachers because teachers won't go for it. And it's ridiculous. Jamal Bowman and Tom Massey. Yeah. Um, So I'm just curious. I mean, it is one of those, another one of those times where they've made up, you know, a bad faith talking point. Yeah, right. I mean, everything is just about, you know, not acting, right? Everything is just about encouraging the belief that, well, if there's violence, the only answer to it can be more guns. Right. And so it, it almost... I think you're right that they they know that teachers won't do it. In addition to that, they also want to further the idea that we could all be safer if Democrats just would drop their opposition to being a hyperon society. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, it's just a completely strange, bad faith. What you would expect from this party with this Thomas Massey. I mean, you watch that video. It's now really, you know, viral. I thought the sort of smugness of Thomas Massey, I found that pretty infuriating. But that's kind of how Republicans feel about these gun crimes, right? Which part of it? This sort of smugness, like if you want a solution, let's arm the teachers. Like, you know, they're not really interested in having a discourse with Democrats. They're pretty damn pleased with themselves for all the victories they've had on quote unquote gun rights, right? And everybody talks about those pictures of some of these Republican congressmen with their families, all of them holding ARs or whatever. And they do look awfully smug. No one's going to take that AR from my four-year-old. You know, I'm being a little glib there, not literal, but that's sort of what the vibe actually is. I mean, it's just awful. It's such an insulting way to talk to the country when it experiences these types of traumas. It's just a way of saying, you know, well, okay, this is pretty bad, but... It could always be worse, and we'll try. Right, and it's, and they're also saying, well, you know, this is, this is pretty bad, but, you know, we're kind of winning here, right? We're getting our way, and, and you, you, you know, you hysterical liberals are, are, are losing, so tough. Greg Sargent, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Cameron Joseph is a senior political reporter at Vice. Welcome to Fast Politics. Cameron Joseph, we are talking about Trump's favorite extreme think tank, but then we're going to talk about something else. But first, this is super interesting because the Claremont Institute, I hesitate to use the phrase the brains behind Trumpism because it feels like an oxymoron, but... It is kind of true. Absolutely. And, you know, these are not dumb guys, especially. I mean, there's multiple people at the Claremont Institute, and I think you kind of have to at some level evaluate them one by one in terms of both fealty to the actual Constitution and intelligence. But they're smart folks who think a lot about, uh, you know, some of them at least think a lot about founding and the American founding and have read a lot of the traditional documents and really kind of gave Trumpism a intellectual and ideological form in some ways, took the id of Trump and turned it into something coherent, or at least put it into a coherent system of, you know, right-wing conservatism and, you know, the founding and Jacksonian principles and and all of these things. And 
did a lot of work to try and make Trump palatable and acceptable on the right early on before he was president and, you know, kind of square his populist urges with a traditional conservative viewpoint. And before a lot of other conservatives were willing to bear hug him, really embraced him. And this doesn't mean that they're like, look, there's an old school of the Claremont Institute that's you know, very conservative, but kind of more not as fascist. I mean, like th- thumbsuckery, traditional, traditionalist. They come out of the Straussian school. Of, uh, of, the Straussians. Yes. Continue on. Go on. Yeah, I, I'm sure everybody here is very familiar with uh, Leo Strauss and Harry Joffa, the guy who. <laughs> My college kid goes to a great book school where they're obsessed with Strauss. Anyway, continue. Sorry. The TLDR here is they were a pretty normy conservative, very conservative, but pretty not out there think tank for many decades. And, you know, the guy who founded right. it was Barry Goldwater, speechwriter. And you know, a lot of the professors who, who wrote there were, you know, kind of across the spectrum of conservatism would write for the Claremont Review of Books, including couple of my old profs. There's a Claremont Institute and then a bunch of those guys teach at Claremont McKenna College, which is a separate unaffiliated institution, which is where I happen to have gone to school. And, you know, if you're writing there, you're conservative, but there were a lot of different perspectives of conservatism. And then what happened was around 2014, Harry Jaffa, I think it was 2014, Harry Jaffa died. And there's this kind of new class of much further right, much less happy warrior mentality guys who came in and and frankly, they're almost all guys and started pushing this in, in a pretty wild new direction. And it just happened to coincide with the time that President Trump was becoming President Trump. And one of the senior fellows there, you might actually recognize the guy's name, Michael Anton, wrote this essay that everyone talks about as kind of the tipping point of the Claremont Institute because it turned off some of the old folks so much that some of the older contributors stopped contributing. People kind of were like a little skeezed out by it, frankly. And it made a ton of news and attracted a new cohort of much further right kindness to some scary types. And the essay was called, you may remember, called the, the Flight 93 election, where he literally compared the choice between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump to the choice facing the folks during 9-11. And the opening line was, charge the cockpit or you die. The idea was like, maybe Trump isn't great in every way, but we're going to lose our country to the crazy liberal progressive leftists who want to destroy the country and this horde of immigrants they want to bring in was essentially the thrust of this argument. Right. An absolutely insane insane thing to say in every way, shape, and form. Yeah. So he wrote this essay. It went viral, which was unusual for the Claremont Institute because Mm -hmm. it's not exactly a very well-known group outside of conservative Republican circles. And, you know, Rush Limbaugh read it, the entire essay on air. It had been anonymous, but Anton quickly claimed ownership of it. And then Trump put him on the National Security Council as soon as he was in office. And so Anton didn't last a super long time there, but he kind of became this much bigger influencer on the right. And the Claremont Institute, you know, that became a bit of a little feeding ground for the Trump administration. A couple of the folks, including uh, Michael Pack, who used to be the president of the, of the Claremont Institute, was very close with uh, Steve Bannon, wound, wound up running 
the division that uh, controls Radio Free Europe and, and all of those things and basically tried to turn them into propaganda arms. And then they have these fellowships, these week-long, like learn about classical texts and learn about how Lincoln thought of the founding and how that fits in with modern conservatism and all that. These training programs, these week-long programs, and right. it's kind of a, you know, a rite of passage for conservatives on, over the last few decades. And they started picking much further out there guys for this, like Jack Sobiek, like the the guy behind you and I. Yeah, Pizza uh, Jack. Yeah. So, yeah. But, but a lot of those guys wound up working in the Trump administration. So how did this group decide that they no longer want Trump and want DeSantis instead? So it's interesting because they kind of were like, OK, Trump is useful. We think that he's helpful. We think he has the right instinct. We're going to try and help him get this ideology and format this out, out so that this is more programmatic and effective. And, you know, they, they fought very hard at the end of the Trump administration. Uh, John Eastman uh, is the other guy you might actually know from the Claremont. It was the, the architect of the legal argument and legal strategy to try and help Trump's coup efforts. And he was one of the guys who spoke on January 6th on stage alongside Rudy Giuliani. He was in the war room with Trump's uh, guys trying to overturn, you know, get, get Congress to block you know, the certification of Biden's win on January 6th. During the riot, he had a very angry exchange with Pence's guy who basically said, this is your fault. And he responded, no, this is your fault for not going along with our plot, basically paraphrasing, but that's what he was saying and has continued to push this stuff. So they're super in the bag for Trump. And so it's really interesting to see over the last couple of months, especially, but it's been building for you know over a year now, a lot of these clear monsters, and that's what they like to call themselves, clear monsters, have embraced DeSantis. And the most visible, obvious example of this was for the first time in the group's 43-year history, opened a borough, basically like a little office in Tallahassee. And DeSantis rolled out the red carpet. He and his wife, Casey, who is also his closest confidant and political advisor, met with them and was at this meeting with Anton and with Ryan Williams, the head of the organization, and Arthur Millick, who heads the D.C. office, and Scott Yenner, who's the new head of the Tallahassee office. And I'm sure we'll get intimately into some of the interesting things he's had to say in a little bit. But they, they had a big meeting with them in February. And... DeSantis has since had Yenner on a, a panel going after uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, basically using him as like an academic vouching for why you need to get rid of DEI in, in public schools. They also have had, I don't know if you've heard about that this little liberal arts school that they've done a hostile takeover down in Florida. Yeah, New College. Yeah, so the, the New College, they came in and they basically got rid of most of the board at this tiny school that is a pretty good school. It's got some issues, but the, the academics are pretty solid there and very liberal student population. So explain the thinking here. Do we think the thinking is they just decided Trump couldn't win, so they moved on? Yeah, there's different folks there, and some of them, that's their rationale and reasoning is like Trump lost. And that's bad. Some folks there still think Trump won and had it stolen from him. But I think that the common thread here is that they like the fury from Trump, but they like that DeSantis takes that and puts it in an ideological frame. And you know, DeSantis has been quoting one of the old Thermont scholars for years, Angela Cotavilla, who died uh, shortly after the last election, after basically 
arguing that that Ashley Babbitt you know, shouldn't have been killed and was murdered during January 6th. But there's an ideological kinship here. And, you know, you, you can't really say that Trump is an ideological anything. He doesn't have right. that type of ability to actually uh, think through things comprehensively in the same way. They see an eager kinship here. I, I mean, they, 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 this is a bit of a bromance between DeSantis and the Claremont Institute because, frankly, they see things pretty similarly. And right. the threat of wokeism that DeSantis is always talking about and how he likes to talk about how Florida is where woke goes to die is very much in the Claremont Institute's wheelhouse. And, uh, you know, they both think that Black Lives Matter is this totalitarian threat that is going to destroy the country. And they think that the 1619 Project with the New York Times is a fundamental threat to American patriotism and, and full of lies and misrepresentations. And they really see it as an existential threat. And Tom Klingenstein is the uh, big money man behind the Claremont Institute. He's also the heads of the board of directors. Uh, likes to call it the Cold Civil War. So give me a little bit of a sense here of what is happening with DeSantis now. So he has this Claremont Institute backing, which I guess will equal more money. I mean, I don't, right? I mean, what what is the relevancy of this? I mean, Trump's base is Trump's base. They don't care. If the elites go with DeSantis, I'm not sure that makes any difference to them. Well, I think that there's different wrinkles here. And I think DeSantis's best argument, and you know, obviously he's got some flaws as a candidate. He's not exactly great on the stump or in talking to actual human beings, whether they owner or voter. Isn't that sort of what candidates are supposed to be good at? But yes, continue. Yes. I mean, the biggest selling points for DeSantis is A, he just won in a landslide. It'd be how he won in a landslide in what used to be a swing state while pushing the state super hard to the right. The Claremont Institute folks, what they're so enamored with and what they want to help them go further in is this right wing project. We like to talk about how the, the states are laboratories for democracy, that old quote. And this is kind of DeSantis is attempting a laboratory of illiberal democracy in Washington. Right. And they're involved in helping it, you know, in small ways with Charles Kessler, professor at CMC and also, you know, head of Claremont Review of Books, one of the publications is now on the board at, at New College, along with two other Claremont uh, affiliated guys. Three of the six appointees had some Claremont ties uh, and they're, you know, doing this hostile takeover of New College. Dick Kessler also recorded some lectures for this new civics program that DeSantis is designing for the state of Florida, basically, like this is how you should look at America and it's going to be in K-12 public education. And then, you know, they're, they're taking bigger swings in terms of changing the law around basically getting rid of DEI programs at colleges. Right. Diversity, inclusion. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about this other story you did about DeSantis getting some of Ted Cruz's people. Yeah. Look, Ted Cruz and Ron DeSantis have a couple of things in common. They both are unpleasant and not appealing. They're guys whose personalities may limit them as candidates, but they have huge appeal with ideological conservatives who don't love Trump. Ted Cruz was limited by Ted Cruz in the last campaign. And part of the reason that he is was not the GOP nominee was what you just said. He's not exactly the most likable guy, but his team was really good. And the reason that Ted Cruz mattered as much as he did and managed to win a bunch of these caucus states 
when Trump was dominating in other elections was because his organization was really good. And the head of that organization was Jeff Rowe. And Jeff Rowe, his campaign manager, just went to run the super PAC supporting DeSantis and brought in a bunch of former cruise guys, including David Polanski, who has really deep Iowa ties, really good data and digital guy, including Chris Wilson, uh, the polling analytics guy from the Cruz campaign. These were, frankly, the best folks in the primary and kept Ted Cruz competitive in times where, frankly, he didn't necessarily deserve to be that competitive because he wasn't that great a candidate at times and built some of the the networks that they needed to win voters and, and organize Trump in some of these states where you could do that in caucuses rather than primaries where it was, you know, kind of more cult of personality driven. And so them going to DeSantis win, I think that they're going to be blocked off a little bit because they're on the super PAC rather than the campaign side. But it's interesting. And it's not just that, you know, that the first congressman to endorse Ron DeSantis, and he's not even in the race yet, is uh, Chip Roy, who I talked to about this. And Chip is Ted Cruz's former chief of staff. And, you know, if you want to go way back, Chip was really instrumental in uh, when Ted Cruz and House Republicans shut down the government to try and get rid of Obamacare. Chip was the guy basically running the show during that. So they're very close. And so Chip's endorsement is interesting there. Ken Cuccinelli, who's the former uh, attorney general of Virginia, big bucky muck in, in the anti-immigration and conservative religious space, uh, lost a race for governor of Virginia, was a huge Ted Cruz endorser last time around. He is heading this uh, organization along with Roe. And Mike Lee, who hasn't actually endorsed yet, but you know, was helped Cuccinelli lead the floor fight against Trump during the Republican National Convention in 16. They obviously lost, but it was very embarrassing first day for Trump at his own convention. Uh, was at a recent DeSantis uh, fundraising event down in Florida. And so you start seeing this kind of ideological kinship with the folks on the right who resisted Trump in 16, most of whom fell in line and did a lot of things to back the dear leader during his presidency uh, are pulling away and DeSantis is their guy right now. Fascinating. Thank you so much, Cam. I hope you'll come back. Yeah, hope that was useful and not too rambly. And now your moment of fuckery. Molly Junk Fast. Jesse Cannon. Oh, uh, no Texas. I'm sorry, no label. <laughs> Gotta get that right. They're up to some serious fuckery uh, right now. Tell us all about it. So, No Labels is a group started by Nancy Josephson and Mark Penn, maybe because Mark Penn is very mad at the Clintons for them not doing what he wanted. Uh, <laughs> for him losing the election for, for yeah, Hillary. I don't know. He had some kind of fight with the Clintons. Um, and they are working on getting on the ballot in all of these states that Biden won so they can deliver the election to Trump. They are saying that it's because... The American people desperately want Joe Manchin, but that's not really true. They really know that if there's another reasonable candidate, it will divide the vote and Donald Trump will win the election. So if you're a Republican and you give to no labels, uh, maybe that makes sense. But if you're a Democrat and you're involved in no labels, it's time to take a, a long, hard look at yourselves because these people are really, really, they deserve the moment of fuckery and everything else. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. 
MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.